feeling overwhelmed by fintech? My name's Matt Janiga, and I'm the General Counsel and Compliance Officer at Lithic. And I'm Reggie Young, Product Counsel at Lithic and author of the newsletter Fintech Law TLDR. Welcome to the Fintech Layer Cake Podcast. A podcast where we slice big fintech topics into bite-sized pieces for everyone to easily digest. Simply put, we're here to make fintech a piece of cake. Fintech Layer Cake is powered by Lithic the fastest and most flexible way to launch a card program. Matt, you know what would be the icing on the top of this intro? No, Reggie, what's that? A sweet disclaimer. I love sweet disclaimers. All right, let's get to it. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal or financial or medical advice. Welcome back to another episode of Fintech Layer Cake. Today, we're covering bank partner basics. Bank partnerships are a common and key feature of fintech. Getting them wrong can sink a fintech company. So let's talk about why first do banks and fintechs partner together. Now, the U.S. has several structural elements that are going to require fintechs to work with bank partners. So Reggie and I are going to step you through some of them. First and foremost, by partnering with a bank, a fintech can benefit from the bank's charter for lending purposes. Most types of bank charters allow a bank to, in effect, make loans and interest rates that can be above the interest rates and caps of other states and fees. Now, the key federal concepts here, because don't forget, we're the regulatory nerds, so we're going to break this down for you guys, to know about are preemption and exportation. Under federal banking laws, a bank can take the laws related to interest rates and fees from their home state and export them to other states. That's why you see so many banks set up in places like Delaware, Utah, or South Dakota, and more recently in states like Ohio. In fact, Chase at one point in time moved their primary banking relationship or some of their banks to Ohio because of some of the favorable laws there they have, especially for credit card programs. Now, if you're going to do fintech lending program with the bank, you still need to watch out for state regulatory trends, even though banks have this power where they can preempt and export rates and fees. There's a couple of reasons for this, and Reggie and I are going to break them down for you. Some of the states are out there aggressively hunting fintech lenders that they don't like on policy grounds. Again, the products are lawful. You can offer with disclosures. And even under the bank's home state license in a South Dakota or Utah or somewhere else, you can offer the rates and fees you want just fine. However, the bank, again, some of the regulators are out there challenging this. So the prime and most recent example is Colorado, who in 2022 announced a legal settlement with Avant and Marlette. Both were using well-known fintech sponsor banks to do their lending business, which should have allowed them to export the rates and fees of the states where those banks sat. However, Colorado didn't like this, and they went and they squeezed these two companies, and at the end of the day, they resulted in some extra registrations and some agreements on rates and fees. The reasoning behind this here is that states like Colorado and some consumer advocacy groups who will often work with some of the state regulators, they can't get what they're looking for out of the federal regulators, are out there trying to attack these uh, sponsorships, they call them rent-a-bank, because they really dislike payday lending. And a lot of times you'll see payday loan companies partner with certain banks to use the same model that well-known liked pro-consumer fintechs use. The difference here is that the payday loans often come with triple-digit APRs, very high rates and fees. And unfortunately, there are some fintechs, and in this case, Avant played in an adjacent enough space on rates and fees where they tended to draw the ire of, in this case, the state of Colorado. We're also seeing, this is another reason to pay attention to state law trends, some disclosure laws pop up in California, New York, Illinois, and others about commercial loans. This is effectively state-level Teeler-Schumer box requirements for commercial lending. 
comes from a good place, makes a lot of sense, will allow these customers to shop more uniformly and compare products across each other, including providers across each other. However, even though they don't apply to banks, the logic holds today or regulators will take the view that they will apply to your fintechs. So definitely something to look out for, especially if you hold your own state lending licenses or if you're working with a lending provider who has state lending licenses. Um, Now, a lot of these won't impact most of your programs. Again, they tend to be focused on high rates and fees or for those commercial lending disclosures, a couple of key states for commercial-only products. But it's still something to work with your outside counsel on. And your banks generally will know what's happening there as well. And they'll have modifications or steers that they can give you to help drive the program. Additionally, by partnering with a bank, a fintech can access a Fed master account. You'll hear this buzz phrase from time to time in fintech. So what we can break it down a little bit more. A Fed master account is an account that's needed if you want to access the Fed's payment systems. So this would be Fedwire or the Fed's ACA trails. Right now, access is mostly restricted to chartered banks. So by partnering with a bank, a fintech can effectively leverage that bank's Fed master account and send and receive money through the Fed rails. Uh, it's also worth noting that there's actually been chatter the past year about the possibility of non-bank chartered entities like fintechs getting access to the Fed accounts. It's still an open question, but it's something to uh, watch for. And there's actually been some rulemaking activity on that. Reggie and I will be watching for it. You can check his newsletter for the latest because I know he's going to be writing about it when it comes out. And you may see one or both of us tweet about it when it comes out. But there are lots of other folks in the industry watching this issue as well. It's also helpful to highlight, and this is something that's different between the US and other markets. Shout out to our foreign listeners, by the way, for the podcast. In the United States, only banks and bank-like entities, that's to think credit unions, et cetera, can be principal members of Visa and MasterCard. The effect of this is that if you were going to offer a payment card-based product, whether it's a credit card, a debit card, a prepaid card, you're going to have to work with a bank partner and they're going to have to sponsor you for a BIN, which stands for bank identification number. And the bank is going to have to sponsor you into the network. So they're going to have to be a member of that network. Note, not every sponsor bank is a member of both networks. Something to keep in mind when you're working with them, especially if you cut an incentive deal with one network, make sure your bank can handle that. But the other aspect of this is that you're going to have to work through a bank partner if you want to access those card rails. And really any BAS platform or any provider like Alithic is doing that for customers in some circumstances. Now, Reggie, I think it's probably helpful for our listeners to call out, you and I have lived in this space a long time. Just because you partner with a bank doesn't mean you get an equal say in all aspects of the program. The bank needs to have first priority on issues that could impact its charter. So things like capitalization, payment settlement risks. That's why banks take a three-day or a four-day reserve against your volume. And also a consumer protection, all very important issues for the bank. That's right. And regardless of why a fintech partners with a bank, the bank should exercise oversight of the fintech since the bank wants to make sure the fintech's program won't cause compliance or legal issues for it. And one quick note on verbiage, we're talking about bank partners here. We also hear the phrase bank sponsor or sponsored bank. Those phrases are generally synonymous with bank partner. It's the bank partner that sponsors a fintech's program. So listener, I'm sure you're wondering, are all bank partners the same? I'd say no. Just like there's different strokes for different folks. And no, I have no idea where that saying came from. There are different types of bank partners, depending upon what a fintech is looking to offer. And I think a couple of the key breakdowns folks need to think about are lending versus payments, lending, non-card lending, because that's another specialty for some of the fintech sponsor banks out there, payment acceptance, because there are some smaller banks that'll do this, but also there's the granddaddy banks that we've talked about in our prior podcasts, Wells and JP Morgan and others. And then there's cards. You even want to think about if you're going to be in payments, the card type. So credit, which is going to be a postpaid product, and you're going to need a lender associated with that, or debit and prepaid, um, which is something that has to be funded. So you're not necessarily going to need a lender, but you're going to have to work with your bank or your card issuing provider to think about ledger and some other functionalities so you can keep track of the funds. And 
The market for bank partners has evolved over the past several years, so we're going to walk you through some of the recent changes in history. You can think about bank sponsors in tiers based on their experience and current program capabilities. So let's uh, start by looking through some bank partner history first to help figure out what these partners' tiers should be. I lived it both in private practice and then in the days at uh, Square and Stripe when I was in-house counsel there. So about a decade ago, you had a handful of banks that were really deep into the sponsorship market. They've been doing it for many years at this point. Folks like WebBank, Celtic, Bankcorp, Metabank, and some lesser known folks like TAB, which stands for Transportation Alliance Banks, Fishback, and a couple of others. The market was small and clubby. Banks were strategically set up in states with favorable banking laws and where someone else had paid that innovation tax to educate local and federal regulators. They'd gotten people over the hump, gotten the regulators trained on what the key risks were, and they'd aligned on what the key controls were the bank needed to see. Basically, there was certainty. Now, within the last decade, you had folks at places like Cross River get into sponsorships as well. And they did a great job becoming a backup sponsor to Lending Club and their loan originations and a couple other large programs. The reason here is because a lot of times banks will push for exclusivity, especially in the lending market. So you can only give out part of your volume if you're going to have a backup bank or a secondary bank there, or you've got to think about those things when you're entering a contract with your primary bank. The Cross River team, interestingly, had a full service bank. So the Utah Industrial Loan Charter companies that we'd mentioned earlier, Celtic and Webb and Tab and those folks, they could help you with things uh, in the lending space. But Cross River was able to take it a step further and very smartly added other services like access to Visa and MasterCard's push to debit card functionality. Also, all sorts of other things related to cards and bank accounts. Now, around this same time, you start to see Cross River enter the sponsorship game in earnest and really start to develop just some fantastic offerings. And shout out to the folks at Cross River. They're always wonderful to work with. You also have some other folks, Evolve most notably, start to gain scale. Evolve was an early sponsor for Synapse, who we at Lithic considered to be the original BAS platform. And they were also able to land some great programs like Step and Scylla along the way. Up in the north, you've got Sunrise Bank in Minnesota. Another great sponsor banks, local regional-ish fintechs coming out of the Midwest, knew about Sunrise. And Sunrise also has some really great scale. I think they still sponsor the AT&T prepaid card program, where if you're a customer, AT&T will sometimes send you a refund or a customer credit uh, on a Sunrise-backed prepaid card. So those are the big and stable sponsors. And then along the way, you have some other folks like Customers Bank that came and exited. In full disclosure, privacy.com worked with them at one point in time. And then we had to find another bank as customers exited that prepaid space. And so you see this kind of market form and get a little bit bigger over the last 10 years or so. Reggie, do you want to talk to our listeners through some of the newer entrants? There's been a lot of exciting developments in this space since then. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of fascinating stuff to cover more recent bank partner history. If you think back to the recession in 2008, you have these community banks that are living in a low interest rate environment. This means they've got earnings challenges as smaller banks. Now, they either need to develop strong lending programs or diversify away from interest income and towards fee income. And one way to do that, of course, is by partnering with payments companies, fintech lenders, and BAS providers. To us, this is where you see the next wave of entrance in the sponsor bank uh, space. These are banks like Sutton partnering with Marketa and then riding the wave of hypergrowth as DoorDash, Square, and other large customers needed cards. Today, you'll frequently hear about fintechs and BAS partners working with banks like Piermont, Blue Ridge, Coastal, and a whole host of others that are too many to cover in a podcast. Reggie, this is a really interesting opportunity, and we don't normally just kind of do this live. Folks may uh, may not know this, but we do a little bit of scripting so we don't trip over ourselves over taping here, and also so we can give you guys the best content possible. But I think something that might be fun is for you and I to spitball on how do we think about grouping uh, sponsor banks? And Because this is something that everybody who's out there looking at a bank partner, you kind of have to evaluate and think about. 
right? Including if you already have a partner, you kind of want to evaluate where does that current partner sit in the ecosystem and what additional things do you need to supplement them? Are you up for doing this with me? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right, great. I'd be curious for your thoughts. How do you think about ranking or organizing the sponsor banks today? What do you think is the right way for listeners to think about it? You know, I was thinking about this a lot. I think you have to be careful with your wording because it can be misinterpreted. And I think the best way to to think about bank partner tiers is, is the phrase operational maturity. Operationally mature banks can get your program up more quickly. They tend to be a little bit more established and understand fintech partnerships a bit more. They can also be a little more demanding and want to see more policies and procedures as you're onboarding. They may be a little slower, their processes and controls that they have to have in place. They also can be a little more expensive to work with, but one of the upsides is you're paying for their expertise and their ability to maintain safety and soundness because they have to keep their bank charter in good standing. They also tend to have great staffing, which is super important if you need nimble and quick turnaround on, say, like new marketing materials or brand changes. No, I love that focus. And I think it's better than just good or bad because these are complicated topics to kind of suss out. So let's go with that. Let's focus on operational maturity. And I think it's going to make sense to say, let's talk, let's three tier it. Most operationally mature, moderately operationally mature, and then I think early stage operational maturity. And Reggie and I have not compared notes in advance. So we're going to do this live here while we tape for listeners. And one last thing before we do this, let's say the tiering doesn't imply one bank is better than another. It's just where they are in their life cycle and how much experience they've had working with fintechs. Reggie, does that kind of tiering make sense to you? We'll break it out in, into those three. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Okay, let's do this. Why don't you give me one of your most operationally mature banks and I'll let you know if I have it on my list and then we can just go back and forth naming one until we run out. I'm gonna go with Cross River. I think they're Ooh. a pretty operationally mature bank. I love that. And it's helpful to call out for folks. Cross River is also what I would consider to be a full service bank. So they can do credit and they can do debit. They can do term loans. They can do just about anything you might possibly want out of a banking partner. And Reggie, I had them on my list as well. Do you want to tease out a couple of the reasons why you think Cross River is one of the more slash most operationally mature banks? Sure. I think some of the points we were just talking about, they have staffing to be able to turn around materials if you need quick review. They also tend to just have generally like more experience, as you were just mentioning, they're full service banks, so they need to cross their T's, dot their I's in terms of compliance and legal. And so they tend to have a, a bit more oversight, which can also be interpreted as helping you figure out what you need in your program to make sure that it's compliant. Yeah. And we've had some great experiences. I know we worked with Cross River when I was at Stripe and then you and I both worked with them at Blue Vine. And uh, I think they've got a great team over there on things. A couple of notes for folks who are interested in working with Cross River. They generally will tend to shut down a little bit early on Fridays as they're observing some Jewish holiday, but they will usually kick back up around Sunday. So you do still get a full working week out of them, which is helpful. It's just a little slightly different. You want to plan your marketing changes and things around that. They also have a tendency to push for their own technology, but it doesn't mean you have to use it. They just have a preference for it, their own APIs and things like that, which are pretty decent from what we've heard from folks out there in the market. So for smaller fintech, you're looking for kind of a one-stop shop. Cross River is a great blend of kind of everything you might need. Reggie, I'm going to call it WebBank as another one. And I'll also tease out for listeners that I split my list by credit and debit. Web is a primarily a pure credit play, although we've heard they've been up for having conversations on some other products and offerings with various fintechs over the time. Web's really fantastic. And one of the things to call out about WebBank, and CrossRiver has this as well, they will also offer capital market capabilities. So they'll help buy and warehouse some of your loans, or they potentially can offer you warehouse type funding 
um, which if you're a smaller fintech, you're just getting started, that's something that can be harder to line up or can be expensive in market. The banks themselves will be more expensive usually than what you can get at scale. But obviously, you can have discussions with them if you can get better at scale, if they want to taste your program or want to warehouse those assets to participate in the upside of what you're of what you tend to be originating through their sponsorship platforms. They'll certainly do that. A couple other things I really like about WebBank, they have a really great approach to getting you live. They have a whole team of folks. Their sole job is to get your program live and out the door with loans or cards, whatever it is you're focusing on. And they will help you identify and knock down hurdles. Web also has really cool offices with fantastic views of the mountains out in Salt Lake, in case any of you are ever interested in that. So it's not a bad place to go visit. And obviously, uh, some very knowledgeable folks there I'm to partner with. Reggie, who's next up on your most operationally mature list? Uh, you know, one that I'm curious to get your take on is Celtic. I debated whether to put them in the most operationally mature or moderate. And the uh, crux there to me is I've worked with them and they're phenomenal to work with to the point where they're more established, but they're just so easy to work with. It didn't feel like a more kind of slow process laden bank. But I'd be curious if you agree, if you think they should be most operational or kind of moderate tier. Yeah, I would absolutely put them in the most operationally mature bank. My kind of lens on it is, do they understand the key risks Can they explain the business to the regulators and can they keep operating your program on an uninterrupted basis? Are you going to run into some kind of quirk when, in this case for Celtic, it would be the FDIC in the state of Utah would come in roughly on a once a year basis and look at their programs. I think they've been doing this for so long and they've worked with some really big programs, right? They worked with Square before Square got its own bank. They worked with Stripe. I like them so much at Square that I advocated that we work with them at Stripe. They worked with Bluevine. They worked with, I want to say, OnDeck. So a whole host of folks and they just have such deep experience. The team's changed a little bit, but I think there's a couple of core folks. I believe Nissan is still over there on their compliance side. She's really fantastic really knows her stuff. And because she's an expert, she's someone you can get into the weeds with on topics and tease out nuance that can help create special superpowers on the product side for your program. Their general counsel, Leslie, is also really fantastic. Bank management is really wonderful. And Eric Peterson on their partnership side is really fantastic as well. So I, Reggie, I definitely hear you. They feel like a moderately operationally mature bank because they're so easy to work with. But they are very buttoned up and very much know their stuff. I remember debating eSign and NIST standards with them at various points around things. And they knew their stuff and could really help make sure we landed in the right place on that. I'd put them as most operationally mature. And definitely on my list, again, credit focused for Celtic. Reggie, who else do you have? Because we've got a lot of common ones here. Curious if we can find one we uh, maybe we don't both agree. I'm curious to get your take on Sutton. They were another one I struggled with, given that they're so tied a bit to uh, Marquetta. That I struggle. That's been their biggest claim to fame. But is that enough that they would be considered more operationally mature or most operationally mature? I yeah, it was it was hard to place that. I guess I defaulted into putting them moderate operational maturity. But curious for your yeah. take. Yeah, I th- I think I'd put them as most operationally mature. And again, it goes back to the idea of can they handle their business on the regulatory side, and that includes capital management, that includes safety and soundness, right? The types of kind of core like COO, CFO type operations that need to happen, not just talk to the regulators. Because these banks are all great, right? They're not out there schmoozing regulators and trying to pull wool over their eyes. They really know how to run their business and understand the risks that fintechs can introduce to the bank charter. Um, I'd put them as more as most operationally mature. And I lean that way because you can't work with Square at that scale. Square is a rightfully demanding customer. And Square's cash card would not be such an important part of their cash ecosystem if Sutton was not operationally mature. You look at Marketa, they power 
DoorDash and a couple other large scaled platform programs and cards behind them, where my understanding is those revolve around Sutton. And so I think Sutton has to have a level of operational maturity. One thing to tease out, Reggie talked about ease of working with Celtic. I have not yet worked in earnest with Sutton. I've contracted against them, but usually I tend to leave a company before we get live with them. So I haven't seen them up close yet. So can't speak to that. And that's something that folks may want to kick the tires on or ask for references before they go. Reggie, I had Bancorp on mine as well for operational maturity. I think we have worked opposite Bancorp. So they are someone who can be a little slower because they are so risk-focused, very good at what they do. And so if you need stability or that good housekeeping seal of approval, Bancorp is a very excellent partner, but also will likely be a little bit more slower moving than a Crossriver or a Celtic, or even I'd say a web uh, on that. Bancorp will also call out generally in the debit and prepaid space. You see them as big backers for the Chime program. I believe they're one of the core and actually original sponsor of Chime's uh, debit card program. And you'll see them on some other large ones as well. Good bank to work with. They're definitely one of the most operationally mature. So if you, if you value stability, you want the regulators to come in and rug pull you. Bank Corp's definitely up there. I'd add MetaBank to that as well. They're one of the OG sponsors in the debit and prepaid space. And I put them on that Bank Corp-like tier. Reggie, I'm curious, do you have anybody else in that most operationally mature category? Because I got a couple more. Uh, like you cover the ones I was going to. Bank Corp, WebBank, MetaBank, so... I'm going to throw in two more. So using my lens of who can handle their business with regulators and who knows how to run an operationally sound bank, I would say Sunrise Bank definitely fits my mold. And I think I have not worked opposite Sunrise, but I've had the chance to chat with some of those folks over there and have gotten some good positive feedback about other folks. Sunrise has been doing this for a while. We'll talk about them in a minute, more in a minute. And at the same point in time, they've been handling some large programs. Like again, I think I mentioned earlier, they handled the AT&T debit card program. I, as a former AT&T customer, got one of those rebate cards. Evolve's another one. I think Hank and Scott, who run Evolve, really good bankers. And they have a really large non-fintech business, which is always a great stability sign. Celtic has that. So that's why they have good staffing. They have good banking operations and bones already. It's not just all live and die with fintech. But I like the Evolve team a lot. And I think Hank and Scott are really great. It starts with them. And they've done a good job building out their partnerships function to help work with fintechs, but also their compliance and legal functions as well. Reggie, I've got one more, which is Patriot. That's our bank generally not looking for sponsorships. They prefer to have folks come route through Lithic if they're going to do business with Patriot. But having worked now with Al, the primary business contact we have, and Judith, And then also having heard enough about their CEO, Rob, I think Patriot is very operationally mature and buttoned up, particularly for the prepaid card space. And obviously we're developing some new programs with them where they're gaining operational maturity on things. But I think prepaid and debit card space, Patriot really knows their stuff. And that goes back to Al and the other staff there. They've worked in this in the industry for a long time. Prepaid industries goes back decades on on this. So a lot of great experienced folks out there at various banks on that front. Reggie, who do you have in your next tier, the kind of moderately operationally mature types of banks? And I'm curious, what makes them moderate versus most operationally mature for you, whether it's experience or something else? Coastal, Piermont, we're in my moderate ones. I think generally you've covered kind of the key factors of what do the processes look like for interacting with the banks? What is their regulatory complexity? How much can they help fintechs they partner with navigate programs versus those fintechs needing to be able to figure out themselves. I'd be curious for your take if you agree with that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I had Coastal and Pyramid. I also had Blue Ridge. And then I toss in Green Dot here. Green Dot started as a prepaid card manager, like an MSB. 
They bought Bonneville Bank many years ago now. I want to say like the early 2010s, may have even been earlier. And then they recently launched banking as a service offering. And Reggie and I know this, we were at Bluevine. We worked with Bancorp on our banking offering for Bluevine customers. Cabbage beat us to market, at least from having a full-throated program. We weren't able to open the funnel fully because we were still baking and adding in elements and things. We did not use a banking as a service offering when we were at Bluevine. But Green Dot was powering Cabbage. And we're able to get them there faster because of that nascent banking as a service offering, which they've still developed. Latest earnings call, they've lost some customers, but it's unclear if that's natural graduation off of banking as a service. Customers wanting to own more or getting a better deal from a bank corp or even a US bank or somebody swooping in and saying, hey, we'll do that for you. Because don't forget, prepaid cards, if structured right, can sometimes overcome the Durban pricing caps. I'd put Green Dot in that moderately operationally mature. And anybody who's looking for a banking as a service platform, I think Green Dot's an interesting one to go talk to if you're out there hunting for that because they do have their own bank charter. I'd also put out there, Reggie, on the credit side, I'd put out First Electronic Bank, Stride, and Tab for folks to talk to. All three in Utah, Reggie and I have at some point talked to all three of those banks on various things. I want to unpack why I view them as moderate. I think FEB is a good example. They got started to be the homegrown credit card bank for the Fry's electronic brand store, which if you're in the Bay Area and you've been here long enough, Fry's was basically Best Buy out here, but it was a lot cooler. You could go through the aisles and go look at transistors and wires and stuff and troll through and just go pick them out of bins. It was like the Home Depot meets Best Buy of like electronics needs. Fry's no longer exists, but Mr. Fry retains the bank. And really they got started to power the Fry's in-house credit card that you could use and you could get store credit at Fry's. And I believe it might've been Visa badged. So you could even go use it somewhere else. I don't know how many people did. Along the way to expand revenue, they brought in some folks who had done partnerships at some of the other banks, Celtics, CIT, and Web, And they started to get into that game as well. And so they've had a pretty interesting sponsorship business for a while and have tended to grab pieces of sponsorship business from folks along the way. Really good team, but they've had some turnover lately just as they've seen some folks retire. And still a very good team, run bank, especially on the operations and finance side, but hasn't quite found that marquee program the way you might've seen Web or Celtic do. Web also powers PayPal, which I think is one of the reasons why you can look at them and put them in a top tier um, of things. Stride powers Chimes credit products is my understanding. I think also some of their debit products. Folks can go check the website if they want to double check me on that on the Chime website. have heard very good things about them from my friends at Chime, but I'm not aware of them powering other things. Stride, my understanding is also has a toe in some of the payday or tribal lending types of things. So sometimes can have a target on their backs from policymakers, but generally handles their bank well. And from what I understand is a good partner to China, at least last I heard. And Tab kind of similarly has some really interesting sponsorship cases, especially if you're in like the trucking or some of the fleet businesses. I think Tab is somebody if you're going to go direct to a bank, probably want to give a call to because they have a lot of experience in that space, particularly on the banking side and have a lot of things. Reggie, anybody else you'd put in that moderately operationally mature bucket? No, you covered the other folks I was going to mention, like FEB. I'd be curious if you had any in your early operational maturity bucket. Ah, so I have one that I think is worth talking about. And otherwise, I think these banks are not the right bank for you to work with unless you are a really mature fintech and have a really mature team. If you told me the Stripe Capital team wanted to work with a bank that hasn't really ever done sponsorships before, I would say fine. That makes sense. If you told me Bill.com was going to go do something like that, I'd be like, great. They are a well-capitalized, mature, public. Bill.com is publicly traded. I wish Stripe were publicly traded, but they'll get there someday. And they have enough capital and enough funding 
to go bring the maturity to a bank that maybe hasn't cut its teeth yet in this space. But there's one bank I think worth talking about. And I think they have the right expertise, the right mindset, the right funding and capital, the right ownership structure to be really interesting, even though they have not yet, I think, landed the marquee program to prove themselves. I'd say Column. I really like hmm. William and his team, right? I've had the chance, they're in the Bay Area, I've had the chance to meet with them before, you know, have heard from folks in FinTech building on Column that they appreciate working with them. You know, I've heard generally good things about them. And so I think Column is definitely one to watch. And I think people who write off Column or dismiss them for whatever reason, I think they're wrong because I don't see why William would give up on banking. And I think they bring a technology angle and a business angle that a lot of the other banks we've talked about don't natively have on their ownership team or on the, in their C-suite. There's really great partnerships people or you may have some folks that are on the management committee that have that. I think Eric at Celtic is certainly is somebody like that. But I think William and his team top to bottom are bringing a new lens to banking. And if there is something they don't know yet, I have faith that they'll figure it out because um, I think they're in it for the long game. And so I'm really excited. I think the next time we do this ranking, they'll move up at least a rung, if not two. But if you're going to go talk to a less mature, uh, less operationally mature bank. And Column, I think, as far as I know, has really only been open for business a couple of months now on the fintech side. Column would be the one I'd say go talk to. So that's a pretty good kind of bucketing of various banks as Matt and I think about them based on operational maturity. But I think listeners will probably be curious to hear how one gets a bank partner. What does that process look like? Fintech wants to partner with a bank. Matt, what's their first step? First and foremost, I think you want to figure out what do you need and what do you want? This will go back to the top of the podcast. So go back and re-listen if you need to. So where we talk about different banks specialize in different things, lending, card products, debit, prepaid, credit, Durban exempt, so you get better pricing, non-Durban exempt, right? All sorts of different things there. You might go for acceptance. I think that's what you want to figure out. The other thing is too, like, do you need Fed account access, right? Because there are banks who will help you with that or the correspondent banks that'll help you do that. We certainly saw that on the PPP side where there were banks that were willing to be correspondent banks for fintechs and allow them access to the PPP loan funding facilities. Reggie, what do you think is next up? Once you've figured out what you want and need from a bank partner, you should go and figure out which banks to talk to initially. I think the best way to do this is probably talk to other operators in fintech and, and figure out who they like based on their experience. Sometimes a bank's reputation doesn't match how they are to work with in practice. And that, that can actually mean a great thing. It can mean that there are great bank partners out there who just don't have a well-known reputation yet. So I think the second step is probably go talk with other fintech operators and find out which bank partners they like. Kind of again, keeping in mind some of the points Matt and I were talking about as we were tiering banks of certain banks of more debit, prepaid card strength versus credit and making sure you're mapping that onto your recommendations. I like to run a type process when I work with companies around finding a bank partner, especially if you've got a hard product launch mandate. Like you've got by the end of the year, you want to see an MVP in market, ideally at least a couple of pilot customers, if not a full launch. And I've worked under all sorts of deadlines for trying to get stuff live. So when you have a deadline or you're trying to be judicious and efficient in your timelines, I think one of the things you want to do is do an RFP. Rather than kind of slow roll your talks to banks, et cetera, I think you want to go out to a bunch at once figure out a number. I like somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 10, but if you want to go talk to 20, go talk to 20. Send them some information, ask them some questions in writing, set some deadlines, get them to come back, see what they respond to. And as part of that, try and get pricing out of them. And then figure out some cut lines on it, depending upon which banks will play ball, who will give you some pricing, 
who requires you to hop through a bunch of diligence hoops before you get pricing. Sometimes the hoops will be worth it. You know, so some of the larger sponsors like Cross River or Evolve um, or Sutton may ask you for a lot of upfront diligence to unlock a term sheet. But one of the things that's important to let them know is that you're running a process and that if they don't hurry up or at least match your speed and pace, they're going to lose out on the opportunity. For smaller fintechs, it's harder sometimes to get banks excited. That's why banking as a service is such an important market innovation because you can bypass the sponsorship market, build scale, and then take your scale to go talk about going direct to bank sponsor. Plus, you can build scale in your compliance and partnerships functions and those other important things. Operational maturity, you need to match a cross river or webs type of expectations. But one of the things you can do is you can run an RFP. We obviously have listed out a ton of great banks, including a ton of operationally mature banks. And so you, at the end of the day, you really just need one to come in and match your preferred pricing or give you the best pricing to kind of get where you want to go. But generally, I tend to do that. The other thing is, I will say, if you have the time and capital, if you are an established company and you're adding a card or a lending product, go hire Ben Brown at Accenture. He is my favorite person to work with in this space. I've used Ben multiple times at the companies that I've been at. I can think of no one better than Ben and his team. And uh, these days, it may not be Ben anymore, but he's got a core team he can put you in touch with. Accenture has a bunch of folks that have long-standing ties to the best and run banks that you will want to work with. And so they can get your company on the phone with them. They can run an RFP process for you. There will be a cost associated with this. So that's why if you're smaller, you'll want to budget for it. Or you may want to wait until you're you know, a larger, more mature size, a ramp. If you told me ramp was going to do an RFP, I'd say you should talk to Accenture and potentially leverage them on some stuff. Or I think Brex, Bill.com, et cetera, those type of uh, size and scale of companies. But if it's hard to find, we have some great partnerships people at Lithic, obviously some great folks at Plaid, Ramp, and elsewhere. But if you don't have a great partnership person in-house, partnering with someone like an Accenture can really help you uh, on the RFP. Reggie, what do you think our fourth step is once you've narrowed down the couple of banks that you really want to kick the tires on? I think at that point, you're going to start negotiating a term sheet and eventually the full legal terms. What is market terms changes from cycle to cycle? And we don't really want to give up all of our secrets on a podcast. So we can give some big recommendations, though. Our first big recommendation is go talk to outside counsel to get the best advice. They'll help you hopefully tap into the kind of market terms and stuff that we don't want to talk about as publicly. That said, I think there are some commercial points that enable programs that we can share with you. I think another big one is consider key operational aspects of your bank partner relationship. Like how will you and a bank partner work together? Are there particular relationship pieces you care more about than others? One example would be the process for handling bank sign-off of marketing materials. If you're not careful, bank partners can definitely slow down your momentum here. So it's wise to ask when a bank will get back to you. If you have new marketing materials or new products, are you talking to them about SLAs and turnaround times? Second example is what's a framework for escalating issues? And it's something to consider putting in the contract if it isn't. So one great framework to think about is having a program operating committee where each side, the fintech and the bank partner has a one person's a point of contact. It's the first line of defense for questions. But each side also then has a broader group in case there are bigger issues that this broader, broader group can come together to help resolve differences of views. Those are some examples. But again, we recommend talking to experienced counsel for negotiating the actual substance of terms, uh, given that it can change a bit from time to time. I'd go one step further. Which I'm going to name some names of counsel that I like for folks who are curious. So 
One of the folks that I have repeatedly run into in the market, he's got big law training, worked a ton with us at Stripe, very helpful, negotiated a ton of bank partnership contracts, and is somebody we turn to often when we're talking to banks here at Lithic, is Peter Luce at Quetzal. Luce is spelled L-U-C-E and Quetzal is K-E-T-S-A-L. Really love working with Peter. He does so much of this work that he's always current on latest trends. Peter's very efficient in his work, and we're fairly specialized, as folks may guess, in-house here at Lithic. So we really go to Peter to get a market gut check. But if you're a novice in this space or don't have an in-house lawyer, Peter and his team can handle your entire negotiation with the bank partners. And he's really fantastic at it. If you are up for working with a larger firm, and there's a lot of good synergies here, especially if you're leveraging them for product development, on the credit side, I love Crystal Kajab at MoFo. And there's a bunch of other folks at MoFo as well, mofo.com. Um, and then Crystal is my go-to on credit. I've used her multiple times for negotiating credit sponsorships. If I have the budget, I love going to MoFo and I really appreciate Crystal and her work. She's been a great partner to me pretty much over the last 10 years on this type of stuff. And she has a deep team on lending and credit, including on product, servicing, collections. So any type of thing you might need to know and any type of secret hidden credit alternatives. MoFo has usually been had a hand in that over the last 10 years. And again, partnered with them closely at various stops that I've been at. There's also some great folks at Davis Wright Tremaine. They have an amazing fintech and bank sponsorship group and team and practice. So you can't go wrong with working with folks there. And then another favorite of ours is Eli Rosenberg at Omaha-based firm Baird Home. Eli often represents banks and fintechs, and so he's very current on what's up in the sponsorship market. And Eli also has a good regulatory lens. So especially if you're running to anything where the bank says, I need this for regulators or whatever else, Eli's a great detector on what is a made-up statement from the bank, to put it politely, versus what's an actual statement from the bank. And he can give you some really great counsel there and stuff. May have conflicts, though, because he does represent banks from time to time. But that's kind of my list of four favorites. And there's a ton of other really great folks that unfortunately I'm forgetting about. But if you're out there and you're looking for help on bank sponsorship, I'd say Peter Luce at Quetzal, especially if you're doing credit space, Crystal at MoFo. The DWT team is just fantastic for whatever you need. And Bradford Harden's a great contact there is also the, anybody on their fintech team is fantastic. And then Eli at Baird Home, who is trusted counsel for us at Lithic. Was curious to hear, we were talking about key things to negotiate in your bank partner terms. Just curious if you had any additional ones from the ones I mentioned. Yeah, here's a good one. And actually, I picked this up from the folks at MoFo. So again, give them a shout out. Is sometimes you want to think about how you're going to handle disputes with your bank partner. Reggie talked about that operating committee, which is really helpful for laying out a framework that both sides can follow and help elect cooler heads prevail and reach good business outcomes. But sometimes you're going to be at loggerheads over stuff. And it, you may want to think about whether you want to take disputes straight to litigation or if you want to go to arbitration. And it cuts both ways. Arbitration is quiet, sometimes can be more cost efficient, right? You go hire a panel of folks. Sometimes you can do it in writing if you're going to do expedited arbitration or the dollar amount is low. So you don't have to fly somewhere and do depositions and things like that. The alternative is with litigation is there's a potential reputational threat to the bank partner. And so if you've heard bad things about the bank partner, but want to work with them for pricing or other purposes, or they're the only ones you can get on things, you may want to think about driving disputes to litigation or having a litigation release valve, because the threat of taking an action public with the bank partner may be enough to deter them back to the table or to good habits. Because Reggie and I have worked with bank partners in the past, we won't name them, who have had bad habits or have done bad things to fintechs. And if you have the threat of litigation there, They'll think twice about it or they'll think about backing down when they overplay their hand or do things that are not either in the contract or also not in good spirit of partnership. 
to enable a long-term successful relationship. So that's, I think, the other thing that we'd want to call out. Talk to your counsel about it, mulled over and think about it internally. You know, I think if you're super big and scale like a PayPal, like, yeah, push for litigation, right? If you're a little smaller, you might not want that because you might have problems finding your next bank because people are going to Google you and they're going to see that you sued your last one. So definitely want to think about that. Also, last wrap-up point, I think, on this, again, cannot stress enough how important RFPs are because you're not just picking a partner based on pricing, you're picking on other terms. And a lot of times bank will punt on the most important terms, SLAs around marketing reviews or a termination rights or exclusivity until you get to the definitive agreement and then you get some nasty surprises or a longer negotiation. And so I want to call that out. And Accenture, I think, is really best in class there in terms of who to work with if you're going to run a RFP and get a bank partner. Matt, I think at this point, it's worth talking about what bank partner economics look like. I know each relationship is unique and terms will change as the market changes, but I think it'd be great for our listeners if we walk through some basic key economics of a bank partner deal. So this is kind of structured. If you think about the jobs for the bank to be done and also what they're putting at risk, you can kind of attach a price to each of these things. And that's generally how the pricing will bake out. So one, the bank is going to do some amount of upfront work effectively for free if they're gonna hop through your RFP hoops. And sometimes the banks make you hop through hoops. So they're actually committing a lot of resources. I'm surprised at how much diligence the banks will put you through sometimes before you even get to a term sheet these days. And I cannot answer why, I think it's silly because I think they're wasting a lot of resources by doing this, but they'll do this. And basically they're doing work without getting paid. So one of the things you see when you start to get to the term sheet phase are going to be pre-product launch milestone fees. Usually they kick in at term sheet signing. You'll see another one, some, amount of time thereafter, and then usually see when a program launch. And then sometimes you see a kicker along the way of if the fintech is foot dragging or can't get their act together, the bank also gets a late fee or like a penalty fee if the fintech is slow to get to market. And it's not so much a penalty per se. I'm a little harsh in my language there. It's more about the bank is committing time and resources. They have finite time and resources. And so they're really, it's an opportunity cost for them to work with you. So if you don't go live, the bank has lost out an opportunity and potentially a program that would get really big and be a fruitful relationship for them. So that's one of the key things. Banks also will tend to do some type of ongoing fee relationship. It varies depending upon your product type. If you're somewhere in payments or lending, there's usually a BIPs on volume fee associated with things. Then you might see one-time fees along the way or transactional-based fees, depending upon your product type. And then I think that's where you start to tend to see the breakdown in specialization. I think lending pricing tends to be much simpler, but when you have a true DDA debit product, you can start to see a lot of different places where fees come into play, including if you're accessing bill pay or wires or ACH or other things like that. And so that's where you start to see the pricing get more complicated. Again, cannot stress enough, good outside counsel here can be helpful. The best counsel on pricing and fees, go get someone like Accenture. Matt, I know that you and I fielded some questions from colleagues recently on how to work well with a bank partner. This, is, I think, is driven in part by some recent headlines. We're recording in August of yeah. 2022, and there's been some headlines around bank partners increasing their scrutiny of fintech programs. I have some initial ideas on how to work well with bank partner, but I'd love to also get your take for our listeners. So I think first, figure out who your escalation contact is and build some rapport with them. Matt and I have both seen how crucial it is to have a great contact at your bank partner that you get along with. It can smooth out so many headaches. So that's a big key one to, to 
think about. Another big one is be responsive. If you're in business long enough, you'll inevitably experience a bank partner coming to you with a potential hiccup. You should be quick to respond and resolve it. You don't necessarily need to worry and be fearful that things are going wrong and your bank partner's worried. Because I think actually what I've seen is you can come out of hiccups with better report and credibility with your bank partner if you handle it well than if that hiccup didn't happen at all. I think my last piece too is consider redundancy. Having multiple bank partners, if your business is mature enough, can be a very valuable thing. Bank partnerships can blow up when you least expect it and good good operators keep that risk in mind and will regularly consider if they should be talking to additional potential bank partners. It's not as doable for your early stage, but as you grow, it's something to keep in mind. So with that, Matt, I'm curious if you have any other recommendations on how listeners can help maintain good relationships with their bank partners. Reggie, I really like your list. I'd put a couple of spins or twists on it. I think first off, I'm not convinced if you pick the right partner, I'm not convinced that redundancy is that critical, especially early on. And I think when I say right partner, I really mean one of those operationally mature banks we were talking about earlier. You would expect that those banks are going to be able to handle their end of the business relationship. They're going to make sure their bank is funded, well capitalized, and good regulatory standing. And that if they have any inquiries or questions from the regulators, they'll be able to manage them or partner with you to get the information they need to manage them without interruptions to your program. And I think if you have that, it's not crazy to lock into a long year term, especially if you get better pricing to work with one of those banks. Good outside counsel and or good consultants can help you with exclusivity provisions or provisions you need to carve out for backup sponsors. So definitely a good plug to go work for them. I also like the synergies and scale you get on the redundancy piece from working with partners like Web or Cross River. And a lot of that comes from their capital market side where not only now are you bundling the lender of record or the true lender under their kind of banking charter, you're leaning on their regulatory expertise, their expertise in getting you to market safely and quickly, but you also too can fund your program in a much more efficient manner. Um, And so I think that's really great. Cross River, again, also has a ton of capabilities, payments and all sorts of other things that can be really helpful. They will try and push their APIs on you, but it's not always a bad thing. So you just got to pick and choose where you want to go modular and plug in, whether it's a lithic or an alloy or someone like that under the hood as you go. I agree, though, if you have a less proven partner, one of those less operationally mature banks, you may want to think about a backup or you may want to keep a toe on a BAS provider um, kind of out of the gate. I think I really like your other points, Reggie. And uh, I'd add one more in terms of best practices for working with a bank, which is come ready to explain your hardest asks. Now, Reggie, you know this from our work at Bluevine, and listeners who've worked with me before know that we do this as a default, but pairing your business ask with a short write-up or a deck, if that's what your partner prefers, on why it's safe and compliant will go a long way with that partner. The underlying reality is that your sponsor bank is going to have their staff work on multiple programs. They will firewall. So if you have a key competitor, they tend not to have the same staff work on those types of programs. But they are going to have to context switch. And they may sometimes not have the full context at the top of their head uh, or top of mind as they approach your program. So if you do a write-up, what are you trying to accomplish with your business goal? Why is it compliant? Here's the regulatory site that says this is okay. That's really going to help them to see the path to saying a yes. And in a lot of cases, sign off very quickly. I've personally seen great responsiveness from this from the folks at Web, Celtic, Cross River, and our partners at Patriot. And it's one of the things that makes Lithic and really good providers in this space special for their customers in that those providers can help explain the why and the how to the bank and help quickly secure that yes. Well, listeners, we hope this episode helped demystify the basics of fintech bank partners for you. And if you want to learn more about working well with a bank partner, check out our first episode on building a compliance program. Having appropriate compliance in place is crucial for working well with your bank partner. Thanks for listening.
Thanks for joining us on the FinTech Layer Cake podcast. We hope you learned something useful today. FinTech Layer Cake is sponsored by Lithic, the fastest and most flexible way to launch a card program. If you're hungry for more content about FinTech, regulation, compliance, cards, and payments, we have all kinds of information on our website, from light snacks to full course meals and cake. Check the other episodes of the FinTech Layer Cake podcast on all streaming platforms today.